This week, we're at Steepletop in Austerlitz, New York. This farmhouse was the home of Edna St. Vincent Millay. In a tiny cabin behind the house, she would write her poems and plays. She lived here for 25 years until her unexpected death in the home. Her sister, Norma, moved into Steepletop, leaving everything exactly as Vincent had left it. And so it remains today. Welcome to Someone Lived Here, a podcast about the places cool people called home. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. Every other Monday this season, we have brought you to a cool place in New York and told the complicated stories of the people who once lived there. Today, we're outside a white farmhouse on a steep hill. The home is surrounded by land and white pines. There's a short, hilly walk to a blueberry field, forests in between, and close to the home, a freshwater pool with gardens surrounding it. To learn more about how Edna St. Vincent Millay got here and who she was, I spoke with Holly Pepe. She's the literary executor for Edna St. Vincent Millay and knows Millay's work inside and out. So Edna St. Vincent Millay was one of America's best-selling poets. Uh, She was really a virtual rock star in the 1920s. She was an unlikely candidate for fame. She was born in Rockland, Maine, and she grew up in Camden. She was the eldest of three daughters. Uh, Her two sisters were Norma and Kathleen. Vincent's mother, Cora, was a remarkable woman. She divorced her husband in the year 1900, and she raised her three daughters on her own. So Cora raised these three daughters alone, and there was no money to speak of. So they lived in rented homes. They moved from place to place. Cora was a traveling nurse who would be gone for weeks at a time, leaving Vincent in charge. The girls were really a unit. It was a little like the Bronte sisters. And Malay was the head of that unit. She was really the mistress of the household. And Cora left her with a great deal of responsibility, which really was to keep the house and to bring up the two daughters. But Vincent did a lot more than just look after her sisters. She was extremely talented. She was writing poetry As a very small child, she put a book together for her mother when she was in grade school. And she was also in high school. She was the editor of the literary magazine. And she published poetry from the time she was very small. She really wanted to publish poetry. And there was a a magazine called St. Nicholas Magazine, which was a magazine for youth. She would submit her poetry under the name E. Vincent Millay so that she wouldn't be recognized as a girl. She was often published in St. Nicholas magazine and won prizes, but she could no longer submit to the magazine once she turned 18. After high school, Malay was desperate because she really wanted to go to college. But there was no money, clearly, in that family, and it didn't look like any of the girls would go on to higher education. But Cora one day brought a, an article home from a newspaper, and there was a notice in it about a literary prize a poetry prize. And the best poem in this contest, the first three poems would win cash prizes, which of course was very attractive to that family. But all of the poems, the top 100 poems chosen as the finalists or as the all the runner-ups would be published in a book called The Lyric Year, an anthology that was indeed published in 1912. So Malay was already working on a poem called Renaissance, Now, when she started writing it, she titled it Renaissance, with the spelling we know. And later, when she sent the poem in to be published, one of the editors suggested she change it to the old spelling and old pronunciation, Renaissance. So that's the poem we know today. It's a famous poem today, because Millay did submit that poem 
to the contest. It was a long poem of rhyming couplets, and it was about, of all things, a spiritual awakening that she herself claimed to have had. And it's extremely sophisticated. It was so sophisticated that the editor was surprised, after corresponding with Vincent, to find out the writer was a 20-year-old woman. In a letter, he wrote, No sweet young thing of 20 ever ended a poem precisely where this one ends. It takes a brawny male of 45 to do that. Vincent was upset when the piece didn't win the prize, but it was published in the lyric year. Her sister, Norma, was waitressing at the Whitehall Inn in Camden, Maine, and one night there was a talent showcase where the staff would perform for the patrons. Norma asked Malay if she would please recite her poem, her famous poem, for she played a little piano. So she did. She stood up and she recited Renaissance. She had a little trill in her voice. All I could see from where I stood was three long mountains and a wood. And she mesmerized the audience. And there happened to be a woman in the audience named Caroline Dow. And Caroline Dow was head of the YWCA training school in New York. And she immediately recognized Malay's talent. And she asked if she could meet with Malay's mother. Well, this meeting led to Caroline Dow offering fine support for Malay to attend college. And after looking at several colleges, Malay decided on Vassar. She loved the idea of Vassar. And that is indeed how Malay went to Vassar. She, there were several wealthy patrons who, whom Caroline Dow had appealed to. She was 20 when she went to Vassar, so she was already a famous poet. She was already well-known. So she was quite uh, already known among the girls to having a bit of an ego and to not following the rules when she felt like not following the rules. The president of Vassar at the time had once told her that no matter how much she broke the rules, he wouldn't expel her because he didn't want to banish Shelley on his hands, referring to the Frankenstein writer Mary Shelley. She responded, On those terms, I think I will continue to live in this hellhole. Right before graduation, Vincent went to New York City to hear the Italian opera singer Enrico Caruso. She was suspended for leaving campus and was told she would not be able to graduate. It took a petition signed by 120 members of the faculty for her to get reinstated and be able to graduate. So after graduation, she moved to Greenwich Village. And this is the period of time that we really know most about or people she's most famous for, I should say, because that's when she was she attracted virtually all the male literati of the day. <laughs> and free love, of course, was in free swing. And for her, experience was the stuff of poetry. Experience was fodder for her work. So she broke hearts, I should say, one after another. And Norma joined her in New York, which was really quite wonderful because she wanted Norma to be with her. She didn't want to be, she thought it would be fun to bring her to New York. And eventually her mother moved to New York as well. And they shared these apartments. She would go from one apartment to the other. Uh, How did she support herself, (laughs) you might ask? Well, she published poetry in all the popular magazines, but there wasn't much money in that. So she realized that if she wanted, could write short stories or some of the rather satirical short pieces that Dorothy Parker was writing, that she might make more money. So she did, but she was very covetous of her reputation as a good poet, a careful poet, a craftsperson. She was that so meticulous that she didn't want to spoil or taint her reputation as a poet. So she adopted a pen name, Nancy Boyd, and that was her name for prose. And she was often amused that Vanity Fair would publish two poems by Millay and a short story by Nancy Boyd. When a book of Nancy Boyd's stories came out called 
distressing dialogues. You won't believe who wrote that preface, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Here's a part of it. I am no friend of prefaces, but if there must be one to this book, it should come from me, who was its author's earliest admirer. I take pleasure in recommending to the public these excellent small satires from the pen of one in whose work I have a never-failing interest and delight. So, she's a famous poet in New York. She's writing poetry. She's writing uh, fiction as well. And in 1921, she, she said in one of her letters that she just was tired. She was tired of that sort of rat race and Yes, and being the famous poet and going from place to place. She decided to go to Europe. And she went with a contract from Vanity Fair, who asked her to send these satirical sketches back while she was over there. She would spend almost two years in Europe. She had love affairs with men and women, and traveled through Paris, London, Rome, Budapest, and Vienna. In her time away from the U.S., she was also homesick, writing letters to her mother and sisters. It was in Europe where she would write The Ballad of the Harp Weaver, dedicated to her mother. The poem talks of a son and a mother. They are very poor and the boy has no clothes. The home is nearly empty, except a harp that nobody would buy. I saw my mother sitting on the one good chair, a light falling on her from I couldn't tell where, looking 19 and not a day older, and the harp with a woman's head leaned against her shoulder her thin fingers moving in the thin, tall strings were weave, weave, weaving wonderful things. Many bright threads from where I couldn't see were running through the harp strings rapidly, and gold threads whistling through my mother's hands. I saw the web grow and the pattern expand. She wove a child's jacket, and when it was done, she laid it on the floor and wove another one. She wove a red cloak, so regal to see, She's made it for a king's son, I said, and not for me, but I knew it was for me. She wove a pair of breeches, quicker than that. She wove a pair of boots and a little cocked hat. She wove a pair of mittens. She wove a little blouse. She wove all night in the still cold house. She sang as she worked, and the harp strings spoke. Her voice never faltered, and the thread never broke. And when I awoke, there sat my mother with the harp against her shoulder, looking 19 and not a day older, a smile about her lips and a light about her head, and her hands in the harp strings, frozen dead, and piled up beside her and toppling to the skies were the clothes of a king's son, just my size. Soon after the poem was published, her mother, Cora, would join her in Europe, where they would travel and sightsee. In 1923, both Vincent and her mother came back to the U.S. She was 31 years old, and received a Pulitzer for that poem dedicated to her mother, the Harp Weaver. And that wasn't the only life-changing thing to happen that year. And she went to a house party thrown by a friend of hers in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. And at this house party, there was a game. They played charades. And there was a man there named Eugen Wasserbein. And Eugen was a Dutch coffee merchant, very wealthy, very handsome, very dashing. And interestingly, he had been married to a Vassar graduate named Inez Milholland. And Inez was well known to be a suffragette. She had died of a blood disease very quickly, very young. So Eugen was a a widower. He was at this party, and he was really put together by Floyd Dell and a few of the others there who fixed them up. 
and they played a married couple, sort of a, a bumbling country bumpkin kind of couple who were coming to New York, going to New York on the train, going to the city on the train, and she was the wife and he was the husband. And sure enough, as several of the people wrote later, it was like watching people fall in love. So very few months after that game of charade, they decided to be married. And part of the reason they wanted to be married so quickly is that Malay wasn't well. She always had intestinal issues, and she needed surgery. Almost immediately after the wedding, Eugen drove Vincent to Manhattan for surgery. She recovered, and the two would live for two years in a famous Manhattan house, 75 and a half Bedford Street. It's known for being the skinniest house in New York, measuring nine feet and six inches wide. Vincent was five feet tall, so that's less than two Malays. They went on a belated honeymoon around the world for eight and a half months. And when they returned, Malay didn't think she could write in the city anymore. Which brings us to our main character. So she was reading the New York Times one day, and she found an ad in the New York Times for a farm, an abandoned berry farm in Austerlitz, New York, for $9,000 for 435 acres. And she, right away, she said, that's the place. (laughs) This could be it. And she and Eugene came up and saw the place, and they purchased it right away. Now the house was completely run down. Across the road, there was a farm called the Bailey Farm. It was 300 acres. And soon after they purchased Steepletop, they decided to buy the land across the way so they would own the whole mountaintop, which they did. So this was a farmhouse. There were various outbuildings. And she named the place Steepletop because of Steeplebush, the plant that grows, the flower that grows on the fields and meadows here, is still here. It did then and it does now. We're now going to meet Mark Oberski. He's the vice president of the Malay Society. He's going to walk us through the home and property and show us where and how Edna St. Vincent Malay lived. And we're going to start in my favorite place, the gardens. Malay created outdoor rooms so for that were used for entertaining or strolling. And originally, all of these garden gates were connected by a Berkshire hurdle fence. I looked up a Berkshire hurdle fence, and to me, it looks just like a nice country fence. When they bought the property in 1925, the property was really run down. And there were two barns here, and another barn over here to the left, and you can see the remnants of the stone wall of the foundation there as well. They tore the barns down, but left the stone walls up, the foundations. Because of all her travels throughout Europe, she was enamored of all the rock wall gardens that you would see in Europe, and particularly throughout England, and she wanted to recreate that feel here at Steepletop. So within the ruins, and she called that because it was the ruins of the barn, there are several rooms. So we'll pretend we're walking in just as as they would have done through the gate. The gate came down a long time ago, so let's just pretend you hear the creaking. So what we're overlooking now, this is the pergola bar. And this, the pictures we have of them sitting at the bar out here is just wonderful. So they would hang out here. Eugen was the bartender. He would be behind the bar here making cocktails for everybody, and they would all sit around the bar. They'd go for a swim. They'd come back to get a drink. And then uh, all along this wall here, because it's a a rock wall and very conducive to growing plants, she would have her hollyhocks and um, very much the plants that you see here today. And then over here is the swimming pool. 
So this is a spring-fed pool. It's rather ingenious. Um, they put it in themselves, and they're um, up on the mountain in back of the visitor center. There is a cistern up there. There's a, a running stream up at the top of the mountain, and they would collect the water in the cistern, and then they put in pipes, a series of pipes, underground that fed that went all the way down the hill and because the gravity was so strong it went down under the hill under the road across to fill the swimming pool and it was um it was constantly flowing water in water out water in water out so that it always kept clean fresh spring water and it would also feed these two fountains and then it ended at the bar there's a spigot at the bar so that Eugen would have fresh water at the bar. They even had two dressing rooms, one for men and one for women, built within the trees. But the pool had one rule. No bathing suits allowed. We're now going to go inside to what was once two parlors. So this is the withdrawing room. So we'll take a walk in. And what you see that is very unusual for a Victorian farmhouse is the size of this room is enormous. It used to be two rooms, two separate rooms, as there would have been in a Victorian house, two front parlors. And they had the wall removed so that Malay had room for two grand pianos. So because she liked to play duets with friends, so they had, she has two grand pianos in the room. So over here, this is Malay's piano. It's a Steinway from 1925. No one was allowed to play this except Malay. This room isn't that big, and two grand pianos take up most of it. In the other corner of the room are couches and a fireplace. There is also a little chair by the window that meant a lot to Vincent. This, this chair that we see in the corner um, is called the bird window seat because that's where Malay would often sit. She kept a, a bird journal um, next to her. She loved birds, and that window was always open. And if you look over here, you see that there was a bird feeder placed directly outside of the window, and she would have the window open here with a little tray of bird seed so that the birds would then come into her room so that she could view them, and she would take notes in her journal. We still have that journal today with all of those notes. And it, it's really very funny because she argues with the writer of the book where the writer will say, this is a rather ordinary bird. And she, she writes, excuse me, this is no ordinary bird. This is quite a lovely bird and it has a beautiful song. And after walking through the garden a little bit here, I can agree, the birds here do have a beautiful song. A lot of what Vincent loved so much about this home was the nature that reminded her of Maine. She planted all the tall white pines because when they blew in the wind, it sounded like the ocean. She was constantly corresponding with her mother in Maine. Cora also wrote poetry. And in January 1931, Cora sent Vincent a short poem. My little mountain laurel trees, so sturdy in a row. I love the ones who set you out and wanted you to grow. Of course I love my other trees, so stately and so tall. But I love some mountain laurel trees when I was very small. My little mountain laurel trees, if you should ever grow. Where I was very sound asleep, I think that I should know. That I needn't dream of cypresses, where cold their shadows fall. But of the mountain laurel trees, I loved when I was very small. In less than a week, Cora would die in Maine. They drove her body back to Steepletop and buried her in the mountain laurel grove. Vincent wrote poems about her mother, but the one I love most was written ten years after her death. 
The courage that my mother had went with her and is with her still. Rock from New England quarried, now granite in a granite hill. The golden brooch my mother wore, she left behind for me to wear. I have no thing I treasure more, yet it is something I could spare. Oh, if instead she left to me the thing she took into the grave, that courage like a rock, which she has no more need of, and I have. After illnesses and accidents, including falling out of a moving car, Vincent was prescribed morphine and became addicted. There are notes from her sister, Norma, expressing her worry. This is also happening around 1939, when World War II had just begun. Despite being a pacifist in the past, she felt that the U.S. had a responsibility to enter. She published a book of poetry called Make Bright the Arrows. Reviews at the time called it propaganda, and her reputation in the poetry world was really damaged. That was the start of an extremely difficult decade. Her sister, Kathleen, died in 1943, followed by her longtime editor, and then her closest friend, Arthur Fickey. A few more years would pass, and then Eugen, her husband, died suddenly in 1949. Vincent grieved alone in the home. Within a year, Vincent died. Her sister Norma would move into the home and be its steward, living there even longer than Vincent ever had, but never making it her own. I now want to go upstairs to the rooms where you can feel the energy of Edna St. Vincent Millay. This is Millay's suite, really. This is the bedroom. She kept a, a, a notepad next to her bed so that she could, she'd wake up in the middle of the night with thoughts or ideas or she could jot them down. And then her secretary would come here in the morning and take dictation and, 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 and take her notes. Um, on, on her dresser, um, when Eugen died in 1949, she um, brought his dresser scarf from his bedroom and placed it here. So those are his initials on there, on the linen dresser scarf. And this is his letter opener, also with his initials. And that is a portrait of Eugen when he was a little boy. He's about six years old there. And on the day he, he died, she inserted her own photograph in the frame, and it's just been there ever since. And then this is her dresser, her vanity. So these are all her personal care items and her jewelry box. And when Norma lived here, Norma lived around her sister's things. So I'll show you that what we found on this vanity um, this is a shoebox that Norma kept on the vanity with her things in it her cosmetics, so that she didn't, you know, bother her sister's items. We're now going to move on to the bathroom. It's beautiful and simple with pink walls and white bathroom fixtures. But the best part are these white towels monogrammed with her initials. E-S-T-V-M. The scale over here in the corner is a relic, but it still weighs perfectly accurate, and it um, is the weight that Malay was when she died. So she was about 98 pounds when she died. And these are actually Norma's, these gown, these, they're not really gowns, they're dramatic caftans that she liked to wear about. And we just kept these here for visitors so that they could see how Norma used this room. She, hang all, she hung all of her own 
clothes on this shower rack so that she didn't disturb all of her sister's gowns in the closets. So Norma put her things hanging here. And she used a bathroom in Eugen's suite when she needed to take a bath or whatever. She wouldn't even disturb this bathroom. So then we'll come into the room that is really the heart and soul of Steepletop. And this is Malay's personal library. So um, you see here a great many volumes of books. There are over 3,000 volumes in here. And the room is really organized in into sections. So this whole section in this corner are all of the reference books. And what you see here, you'll, you'll see books in French, Spanish, Latin, Greek. Malay was fluent in seven languages, and she would really use these books to study. And then over here, these are mostly novels. And then over here in the corner, these are all the classics. So you have class Shakespeare and and then this wall is really a lot of um, human interest, human studies, um, women's books on women's rights. There's a desk in one corner, a bed-like couch tucked among the shelves, and then a comfy chair in another corner. There's also a sign hanging from the ceiling that says silence. Vincent rarely let anyone in this room, so it feels almost like you're trespassing to be in it. We're now going to head down the stairs, which were unfortunately the last place Edna St. Vincent Millay was alive. You see here, these are the stairs that Millay fell down um, and her body lay at the base of them on the landing. She had left a note that, that night to her housekeeper um, in the, on the kitchen table. And the note said, um, oh, you know, I, it's, it's, I've been up all night um, working. Um, I'm extremely tired. It's 5.30 a.m. I'm going to bed, ESTVM. And then it wasn't until 3 o'clock in the afternoon when John Pinney came in to lay the fires for the day, for the evening, that he saw her laying lifeless on the floor. Um, the official coroner's report said that it was a heart attack. Um, so she could have had a heart attack and fell and broke her neck, or she could have fallen and had the heart attack. We just don't know. I asked Mark to walk me out to where the Millay family resides now. We walked through blueberry fields with those tiny wild blueberries that remind me of Maine, then through some high grass, and then a mossy path in the forest. At the end of the path is a small mountain laurel, and under it is Cora Millay, with her daughter Vincent and Norma right nearby. I wish I could tell you to visit Steepletop tomorrow, but unfortunately... The property had to close to the public last year. Steepletop doesn't have an endowment. They're now looking for donations or organizations that could help preserve this place for the long term. I hope they have success, because I just left, and I already want to go back. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of Someone Lived Here. If you like the show, I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back with new episodes in the spring of 2020. You can subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Thank you to Holly and Mark and the entire Malay Society. Thank you to Sam Fishkind, who has done our transcriptions on the website. Music is by Tim Cahill, and podcast artwork is by Ben Kirk. If you have any recommendations for next season, send us an email at someonelivedhere at gmail.com. <laughs>